book of Romans chapter 9. We read the chapter in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 27, which speaks to infant baptism. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God-blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, But of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, There shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, 
a remnant shall be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and had been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness? Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. You read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated in connection with this passage, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 27. Question and answers 72, 73, and 74. Question 72, is then the external baptism with water the washing away of sin itself? Not at all. For the blood of Jesus Christ only and the Holy Ghost cleanse us from all sin. Why then doth the Holy Ghost call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks thus, not without great cause, to wit, not only thereby to teach us, That as the filth of the body is purged away by water, so our sins are removed by the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ. But especially that by this divine pledge and sign, he may assure us that we are spiritually cleansed from our sins as really as we are externally washed with water. Are infants also to be baptized? Yes. For since they as well as the adult are included in the covenant and church of God, And since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them no less than to the adult, they must therefore, by baptism, as a sign of the covenant, be also admitted into the Christian church and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers, as was done in the Old Covenant or Testament by circumcision, instead of which baptism is instituted in the New Covenant. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the sacraments are real means of grace. They're not just pictures. They're used by God to assure us. And that's the point now that's stressed here in question 73. They're used by God to assure us that we really receive the spiritual cleansing of the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ just as really as that water cleanses from impurities. As we consider the promise which God added to the sign and we lay hold on that promise by a true and living faith, God strengthens that faith and God gives us that assurance. We now look at the fact that this is particular grace. After establishing that it really is a means by which God gives grace, we're talking here about the means of grace, the preaching and the sacraments. The question is, does everyone then receive grace when the sign is given? And the answer is no. 
God's grace is particular. We are to think on our baptism. And we focus on that throughout the sermon. What does it mean to think on your baptism? Thinking on our baptism moves us to think of the blood of Jesus by which our sins are washed away. Thinking on your baptism involves thinking on the Spirit's work and believing the work of that Spirit cleansing cleansing our hearts, cleansing our lives, and giving us to know the wonder of the victory that is in Him and His perfect work on our behalf. This isn't just an activity for adults. Also, you children, you young people, need to think on your baptism and the significance of your baptism. Baptism is a teaching tool. We teach our children through baptism what it means to be washed from our sins and incorporated into Jesus Christ. And we teach then what it means now to live a life that flows out of Christ. What is that life to look like? How are we to conduct ourselves as those who have been washed and consecrated to Jesus? We teach them the importance of obedience, of thankfulness. We encourage them as they see this sacrament administered to think on their own baptism. And when they walk contrary to God's will and contrary to God's word, they're walking contrary to the meaning and significance of their baptism. And we admonish them to repent then, turn away from that way, in order that they walk and think upon their baptism. Now thinking on our baptism then is a thinking about God and his faithfulness toward us. We saw that astounding truth this morning again we're faced with that wonder and that reality. God is faithful in the line of generations. God is faithful in our homes. God is faithful with regard to his decree of election. We are a church that loves to baptize. And as we baptize our children, we do so not because of what they look like, not because of what we believe magically occurs to them at the moment of baptism. We love infant baptism because it declares the marvelous truth of God's covenant. And the beauty of that covenant, as Jehovah God establishes that covenant with his elect and preserves it with them in their generations. We love infant baptism because it's an important activity in the church. It's a means of grace to us and our young people, even our children, And as we think upon the wonder of that baptism, we're directed to Christ and what Jesus Christ has done for us. Our children must be baptized because God commands us to do so in his word. There are those that object. They say they will not baptize their children. And we look at some of those objections this evening. And we need to understand in our own hearts, why do we and why do we love to baptize the children of the church? We look at infant baptism, the covenant, the sign, and our comfort. The basis of infant baptism is God's covenant. And this is what the Heidelberg Catechism is teaching us here in question 74. They, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant and church of God. And then he goes on to explain the fact that God did this in the old covenant or testament by circumcision 
instead of which now baptism is instituted in the new covenant. It's important that we understand Old Testament and New Testament are simply referring to Old Covenant, New Covenant. And just in the sense, not that there are two separate covenants, but according to the promises that were related in those individual testaments or in those ages. The New Covenant is the covenant that's fulfilled in Christ. The Old Covenant had to do with promises that we're looking forward. And so we have the Old Testament looking forward, giving the promises. And testament simply means covenant. And then we have the New Testament providing us the realization of those promises as they're found in Jesus Christ. One covenant with those two aspects. And that one covenant of grace is the bond of friendship. It's the bond of love by which Jehovah God has embraced us and given unto us to know that we are the people of the living God. We are of the family of Jehovah God. And we've been brought into this beautiful relationship by which he preserves and keeps us now and to all eternity. And as we meditate and think then upon baptism, we think on that wonder. Jehovah God has established covenant with me. Now when we think of the covenant, there's especially three things that must rise to our minds. First of all, God's covenant is a bond of friendship. God's covenant, as to its essence, is not conditions. It begins with his own Trinitarian being, as God exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God now takes us and he brings us into the enjoyment of that covenant love and that covenant friendship. God doesn't promise certain things on the condition of obedience or faithfulness. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I'm going to bring you into the enjoyment and wonder of this blessedness. So that the covenant is not merely an agreement. It's not conditions. The essence of the covenant is this bond of love, this bond of friendship that Jehovah God establishes with us, all of grace in Jesus Christ. The Bible uses beautiful terminology to talk about this. We read in James 2 verse 23 that Abraham is a friend of God. He's a friend of God. God embraces him as his own friend. The Psalms talk about God enjoying secrets with his people. So that's what friends do. Friends talk and friends share the deep secrets of their being. And that's what Jehovah God does with us as he takes us into that bond of friendship. Marriage and family are set forth in the Bible as pictures of God's covenant. Love, communion, friendship. Thinking on our baptism reminds us that we belong to the family of God and that Jehovah God has taken us into that family and that he's made us his friends. That's a beautiful truth. And it's astounding when we think of it. Who am I that the living God of heaven and earth takes me and makes me his own friend? That he brings me into the enjoyment of his love as an everlasting love. And as we think on that, that changes our perspective with regard to life. It changes how we approach life. It changes how we face struggles, how we face trials. We confess, God is holding me. 
He's directing my life. And he's doing so as my father who loves me, who's taken me into this bond of friendship, who will never cast me off, and who's directing everything in accordance with his perfect plan in order to receive me by his perfect counsel into glory. But secondly, as we think on the covenant, we think of the blessings that are part of the covenant. Not only is the covenant a bond of friendship, it involves blessings. And this covenant is a covenant of grace. That simply means that we don't do anything in order to attain this relationship with God. Again, the Bible is filled with instruction about that. And Romans 9 stands at the foreground. Hebrews 9, in verse 15, states, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, or covenant, that they which are called might receive the blessing of eternal inheritance. God calls us and gives us the blessing of an eternal inheritance. An inheritance, not something we deserved or earned, given us freely by God. Blessings that are astounding as members of this covenant. The fact that it's all of God is emphasized here in verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And then emphasizing even that truth again in verse 16. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It's not of us. It's God's work. He's the one who's done it all for us. And because of the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ, we have this bond, this union. And he's the one who's chosen us. He's the one who preserves and keeps us in it. And he's the one who will grant us rich blessings in the enjoyment of it. Blessings that are poured out in abundance. And again, the Bible is filled with expressions of those blessings. But one beautiful chapter in the Old Testament where God is speaking of the new covenant. Again, the realization of that old covenant is found in Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be that covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it on their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them even to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Essential to the blessings of the covenant is that glorious truth. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What a wonder. Note the blessings that flow out of this. We know God, and we know him as our Father. He writes his law on our hearts by his spirit so that that means we have the desire. We want to do what's right and pleasing in his sight. And thirdly, our sins are forgiven and remembered no more. They've been paid for through the blood of Jesus Christ. For us, 
there's everlasting life with God. Now we ask, for whom are these blessings again? Who receives the blessings of the covenant? And that gets at the heart of the covenant basis of infant baptism. The blessings of the covenant are for the elect. And that's the third truth here that we think upon when we think on our baptism. This is God's bond of friendship. There are blessings within this covenant. And these blessings are for God's elect seed. Most other Reformed and Presbyterian churches teach a blessing for every child that is baptized in the church. There's some kind of blessing that every child receives according to them. Regardless of whether they're elect or not. We understand this evening, the covenant blessings of God are for the elect alone. That was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. That's what we read in Romans 9. Usually when we read Romans 9, we think of election. But there's a connection, a close connection between unconditional election and the unconditional nature of God's covenant. And understand the context here in Romans 9. Paul is speaking about his fellow Jews who don't believe in Jesus Christ. He realizes there's so many Jews that don't believe. And that burdens him. It burdens him to the point where he states that he has great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart. And so great is that sorrow that he could wish that he was accursed and that they were saved. Wow! That's the concern of the apostle here. Desiring that they be saved and desiring that they know the blessedness of salvation and that he even be cursed in their place. Now he knows that's not possible. And so Paul then goes on to describe why is it that some do not experience those blessings? And he says, is the problem with the fact that God's promises failed? God made promises, but then because of whatever reason, those promises were not able to be fulfilled. And he concludes, no, that cannot be the problem. The problem is not with God's promises. God's promises are yea and amen. They which are the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise. And he lays out the wonder that God's promise from the very beginning was a promise that was unto the seed according to election, unto the Jacobs. There are Jacobs and there are Esau's. And Romans 9 teaches the importance of the particular nature of God's saving work. Ephesians 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. He loved the church. In John 10, he loved his sheep and he gave himself for it. And here we have that truth set forth. He loved the seed of Abraham. And that seed is Christ and in Christ all the elect. That's important for us to know. God establishes that the sacrament of baptism then is not effective for all the children. The Westminster Confession speaks of this in chapter 28, section 6. The efficacy, that is the power of baptism, is not tied to that moment of time wherein is is ministered, yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. 
That is, in connection with God's decree of election according to God's timing. And so we ask ourselves, why do we baptize then our children? There are those who are Reformed Baptists who would say, no, we ought not baptize children. And their basic reason for rejecting infant baptism and the covenant is that when God, when Jesus gave his great commission, that great commission insisted that they were to teach and baptize. And they insist it didn't include baptizing infants. They say baptism then of infants is a violation of the regular principle, the principle that ought dictate what happens in worship. If the Bible does not command it, we may not and must not do it. And they would insist that there's no place in the New Testament that commands infant baptism. And that if God would have wanted the infants to be baptized, God would have included at least once an explicit command toward that end. In the Old Testament, it was for infants, they would acknowledge, because of circumcision. In the New Testament, they say now, it's for believers. And they insist on a change because God's covenant is only with the elect now. Whereas in the Old Testament, they believe it was broader. And they say now then, those who come to faith and conversion, therefore only only believers, ought to be baptized. Now along with that, interestingly, they root it in the Lord's Supper. They say the Passover was for adults and children. But the New Testament now, the Lord's Supper is only for adults. And they say the same thing was true of circumcision. Circumcision in the Old Testament was for children primarily. Now baptism in the New is for adults. Now we stand separate from them in that we insist, no, God does require the baptism of infants. There are others that reject infant baptism on the basis of a different understanding of the covenant or a conditional covenant. Or they hold to infant baptism but on different reasons, insisting that God promises salvation to all who are baptized and that all who are baptized have some benefit then from their baptism. And God's promises then are for all. What is our response? How do we understand baptism? and the importance of infant baptism. Beloved, we baptize our children because Jehovah God requires it of us. We do not baptize because they're all included in God's covenant. We understand some may not be. As much as that grieves them, and it grieved the Apostle Paul, we confess this is not our decision. This is God's. He is the potter. We're the clay. And God's promises are sure. The fault is not God's covenant. We understand that the children of believers are included in the covenant and church of God. Who are those children? They are the elect whom Jehovah God has chosen before the foundation of the world. In the Old Testament, God gave circumcision. Now God replaced that sign with baptism. God commanded Abraham to circumcise himself and all his household as we noted last week in Genesis 17. We saw the outward sign of circumcision picturing the inner reality of justification and sanctification as Romans 4 verse 11 pointed out. It's a seal of the righteousness of faith 
that Abraham had yet being uncircumcised so that his circumcision was a picture of something he already had. Justification, the basis of that sign. It pointed ahead to the blood of Jesus by which Jesus would atone for his sin. But baptism was pointing to the circumcision of the heart, a cutting away of the heart, a spiritual renewal. And as circumcision was bloody, pointing ahead, we noted that Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, bring baptism and circumcision together. And they demonstrate the two mean the same thing. Jesus gives baptism now to replace circumcision. Baptism, a picture of the past work of God for us and the continued work that Jesus performs in our hearts by his Spirit. Now, how do we explain then the fact that there is no clear evidence of infant baptism in the New Testament. That's the argument that the Baptists throw at us. They say there are no New Testament illustrations. Our answer is there are. The apostles baptized households, entire households. We point to that wonder. Now they point then to the Lord's Supper, to the Passover. They say the new covenant is more individualistic and now the blessings are more specific and should only be administered to believers, only to those who come to the table of the Lord. How do we respond to that? Children are included in the covenant and kingdom of God and as such then they must receive the sign. That was the sense that we read out of Genesis 17 last week, especially 17 verse 7. In addition, that truth has not changed. Acts 2, verse 39, records the words of Peter on Pentecost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and as many as are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The promise is to us and to our children. Now, not to every last one of them. Which of our children? As many as the Lord our God shall call. God works in the line of continued generations, and that's the importance also of Mark 10. Remember in Mark 10, parents are bringing their children to Jesus. The disciples become offended. Jesus doesn't have time for all of these children. And the disciples are trying to keep the parents and the children away from Jesus. And Jesus insists, of such is the kingdom of heaven. Baptism is a sign that God saves his children in their generations. It's a sign of salvation for those who are God's children. And it hardens those who are not the elect who are baptized. So that there's a quickening and a hardening. And again, we read of that here in Romans 9. Those whom God quickens, but also there are those whom God hardens. Now, they also overlook the fact that there's a difference between the Lord's Supper and baptism. Baptism is a picture of entrance into the church and the kingdom of God. Lord's Supper is a sacrament for those who are in and those who need to be nourished. And therefore, rightly, we distinguish baptism from the Lord's Supper. While baptism is administered to believers and to their children, the Lord's Supper is ministered only to those who give evidence of faith, those who are believers. One does not enter into the kingdom only when one gets older. 
and believes. Children are included in the kingdom of God. To say baptism is only for believers is to say that children who grow up in the church, they don't have a place in God's kingdom. The kingdom is closed then to infants. That's an error. And that's contrary to God's clear testimony in his word. Children and adults received the sign in the Old Testament. And the focus in the Old Testament was on children. At the time of Jesus' coming, what needed to be reckoned with was the fact that there were many who didn't believe in Jesus. And now how were they to deal with all these who hadn't been circumcised, who don't believe in Jesus? Now they needed to be baptized as a sign of the covenant. And we similarly hold to believers' baptism in such instances. Individuals that did not grow up in the church. They never received the sign of baptism. When they're older and they confess their faith, they are baptized. That reality was found in the Old Testament as well. Abraham was circumcised along with his seed. Now that wasn't the norm. He was the beginning. And then there was the line of generations. New Testament believers received not only, but households received the sacrament. So that Cornelius and his household are baptized. Lydia and her household are baptized. It doesn't matter if there were any infants or little babies. The whole household was baptized as God pledging his covenant promise to Lydia and to her seed, to Cornelius and to his seed. In the Old Testament, households circumcised. In the New Testament, households baptized. We thank God for the wonder of that sign. And we administer it to our infants then on the basis that the covenant is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The same people, Israel and the church, are the same. And Jehovah God's promise remains the same to believers and to their seed. What a comfort, beloved. And that brings up practical questions then. How do we view our children? We know that God's covenant and promise is only for the elect. We don't know who that includes. How are we then to view our children? Now some view their children as little heathens until they would at some point give evidence of faith. Those who view them as heathens have no basis then to teach. How can they expect any fruit? And as they view them as little heathens, they just grow up to be bigger heathens. If that's what we expect of our children, that's what will become of them tragically. And how will we teach? How do we instruct? How do we expect them to obey if they don't have the love of God in their hearts? And if they don't know the wonder of God's goodness and God's mercy. If God's covenant is not with us and with our children, we have no ground, no foundation to administer discipline, to teach, to instruct, because there will be no fruit. We don't view our children as unbelievers. Another threat is that we view all of our children who are baptized as those who are included then in God's covenant that every single one of them are covenant children of God. Now, sometimes we use that language. We call our children covenant children, but we do so understanding that some fall into the sphere of the covenant who are not actual members of God's covenant. 
But we use the language of Scripture as we address the church, viewing the church and viewing our children with the judgment of charity by faith. God testifying that His promise is to us and to our seed. And as we bring up our children then, we confess and we believe that God's covenant is strictly for the elect. We don't know if individual children are God's elect or not. We approach them as covenant children who are under the preaching, who are under the demands of God's covenant, and we instruct and we teach them until they give evidence of a hardening, of a hatred, and they display other. Some will love the instruction. Some will receive it. Others are hardened, and they refuse it. Hard that is for us, as we noted this morning. Difficult for parents to witness. But we understand this too is God's sovereign decree. And God teaches us then not to take our own salvation for granted. Always to be thankful. But we view our children as those who are in the sphere of the covenant. Because this is the way God works. He saves his children from among the line of generations. And we instruct them and we teach them believing that Jehovah God alone is able to work fruit in their lives. And God will do so as he works that fruit in the hearts of his children. We recognize total depravity in our children. We teach them the need to overcome temptation and to battle against sin. And we set before them the only answer, Jesus Christ. Their only hope is the Savior whom God himself gave. And we call them to repentance. We direct them to the commands of Scripture. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Forsake, turn away from sin, and cling to him alone. And we teach them Jehovah God and his goodness and his mercy. All of that trusting. God is the one who will teach his children from among our children. A covenant that's established in Jesus Christ. And that's our comfort. And that's our encouragement. A covenant that's not dependent on me. A covenant that's not dependent on them. A covenant that is established in Jesus Christ. And again, as we look through Scripture, again and again, the Bible makes reference to God's covenant as an everlasting covenant. We noted that in Genesis 17. Through the Psalms, God speaks of that wonder. God made that covenant with Abraham as an everlasting covenant, with David as an everlasting covenant. An emphasis is put on the permanent nature and character of that covenant. Their seed will be blessed, not just for a number of years or a number of generations, but to all eternity. Now for that reason, even though there's not a distinct mention of Jesus in connection with Abraham and his seed and David and his seed, until later in Galatians, we recognize the fulfillment of that covenant had to involve someone who would be everlasting, someone who would be eternal. Abraham's seed is fulfilled in Christ. David's seed is fulfilled in Christ. So that Christ comes from Abraham and from David as the one through whom that covenant is established as an everlasting covenant. Jesus is the seed of the woman. He's the seed of David through whom God establishes that covenant. 
And strikingly, David understood that. That's evident from Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, verse 29 and 30. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. David, believing that when God spoke of establishing his seed forever, he wasn't talking about Solomon. He was talking about the Messiah. He was talking about the promised one. And David laid hold on that promise. And we similarly lay hold on that glorious promise. God is building our homes through Jesus Christ. He's the potter. We're the clay. He calls us to show forth the riches of His glory. And we do so by His grace. Baptizing and thinking upon our baptism. And thinking upon the wonder of His goodness and His mercy toward us. Training them up. Teaching them. All depending upon Jehovah God as the teacher. So that baptism and the baptism of our infants is not just a custom. It's not something we do out of superstition. We love the sacrament as that which is administered by God for our children. And when we experience doubts and fears and struggles, we cling to the promise of God in Jesus Christ. And we look to Jehovah God as the one who washes away all our sins through the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, grant us the blessed assurance that we are spiritually cleansed as really, as externally that water washes the impurity off of our hands. And grant, Lord, that we might lay hold upon the wonder of thy covenant faithfulness, knowing and believing that it is not of him that willeth, it is not of him that runneth, but it is thee who dost show mercy. And may we, as we contemplate and ponder the wonder of thy covenant and thy faithfulness, ever be thankful. Amen.